Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in an authentic conversation, you are in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead Follier Different, and we are the Real Dialogue Oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. On this episode, we ask the question, are we alone? There are 2 billion or more planets in the known universe that are Earth-like. It would seem that we're probably not alone. Yet in traditional science and academic circles, even considering aliens, never mind researching them, is taboo. Have we been visited by aliens? What do we know about aliens? What can we prove with data about uh, foreign objects uh, visiting or coming to our planet? Dr. Avi Loeb is the most credentialed scientist ever to say that he thinks we've been visited by something from outside of our galaxy. And now, Professor Avi, with his team, is the first ever to discover and retrieve interstellar objects that landed on Earth. And even further, Professor Avi says, he thinks there's a case to be made that these remnants of these objects that came from outside of our solar system and landed in our ocean could be alien. And you see, Professor Avi Loeb is not some wackadoo with a YouTube channel. He's Harvard's top astronomer. And I believe this is his third time joining us. He originally joined us when his book Extraterrestrial came out the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. And now his new number one bestseller is out. It's called Interstellar, the search for extraterrestrial life and our future in the stars. And today we go deep on all of it. This is an extraordinary, rare, unedited, unfiltered, unbounded, real dialogue with a man the New York Times calls the world's leading alien hunter. Now, the future belongs to the creative capitalist, creators, people who can go beyond traditional knowledge work to create new categories of knowledge, new thinking, new intellectual capital, what you might call new creative capital. And to thrive today, legendary companies are using leading creative capital to design and dominate new market categories. And that's where my friends at Mighty Networks come in. You see, on a Mighty Network, you can bring together your digital community, memberships, online courses, webinars, events, and all of your digital community in one place under your brand on a platform that you control. Plus, when you're ready, you can even have your own Mighty Network app on a branded mobile app. So if you want to design and dominate your category and use community courses and digital education to drive new growth, check out MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Professor Avi, it sure is wonderful to see you again. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. And you've been so busy since the last time we spoke, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, well, um, 
Uh, on Monday, I woke up at uh, 2 a.m. to complete the scientific paper that we wrote about the findings from the recent expedition that we had two months ago to the Pacific Ocean. We can talk more about it. And then uh, my book appeared. Uh, uh, it's titled uh, Interstellar, which uh, actually the title of the book uh, represents the punchline of the scientific paper. We found that the object was interstellar. And uh, um, that uh, ha- my book came out on Tuesday. And uh, since then, I had nonstop uh, interviews. On Sunday, I should say, there was a big uh, uh, profile about my research in uh, the New York Times magazine. Uh, there was a report uh, also in The Guardian. Um, so nonstop, uh, I work around the clock. My hope is uh, perhaps to rest a little bit over the weekend, but um, it's not at all clear that I'll be able to do that. I still jog every morning at sunrise. And I did that on the ship, by the way, uh, the boat that we had at the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the, uh, I went to the deck and just uh, jogged there. And uh, one day someone asked me, it looks like you're running. Are you running away from something or towards something? And I said both. I'm running away from some of my colleagues who have strong opinions without uh, seeking the evidence. And I'm running towards a higher intelligence in interstellar space. Well, you sure are. And you've created a lot of controversy um, in doing that um, as a, as a uh, I think, think I can call myself a, a fan, um, you know, gotten to know you a little bit through podcasting and kind of follow your exploits. So I have a thousand questions for you, Professor, but maybe we could start with uh, take me to Papua New Guinea, why you went there and uh, and what you did there and why what you did there has caused such a kerfuffle in, in the academic world. <laughs> well, that was not my intention. You know, I wish happiness and prosperity to all the critics. Um, you know, I am that just following what sounds to me like common sense. So um, the story starts on January 8th. 2014, almost a decade ago, when the U.S. government uh, satellites uh, detected a fireball from an object half a meter in size that uh, collided with Earth. And the unusual properties of this object were that it was moving really fast, uh, 45 kilometers per second, when it came from behind the Earth as it moves around the sun. If it were to collide head-on with the Earth orbiting the sun, it would have had a speed of 90 kilometers per second relative to Earth. So it was really a fast object. And in fact, we calculated with my student, Amir Siraj, that uh, it must have arrived from outside the solar system because the sun's gravity cannot bind it. Uh, And uh, initially, my colleagues disputed that and said, we don't believe the U.S. government. And then uh, three years later, the U.S. Space Command issued a letter to NASA formally acknowledging that they looked into the data and they confirmed this assessment that at the 99.99% confidence, this object came from outside the solar system. And we calculated not only that it came from outside the solar system, but actually outside the solar system before it entered the solar system, it had a speed of um, 60 kilometers per second relative to the so-called local standard of rest. That's the frame of the Milky Way galaxy, which is faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. So it was a fast mover. Um, but moreover, we uh, from the fireball that the government provided, we were able to conclude that it had material strength 
tougher than all the space rocks reported by NASA over the past decade because it maintained its integrity down to the lower atmosphere and didn't disintegrate in the high level of the atmosphere. Um, and so uh, something of unusual strength and unusual speed, that reminded me of uh, uh, Voyager. You know, if we imagine uh, the spacecraft that we launched, Voyager, uh, exiting the solar system in 10,000 years and eventually running into a planet like the Earth, uh, it would appear as a meteor in the sky of that planet uh, with unusual strength uh, and not because it's made of stainless steel uh, and also of unusual speed because it was propelled by a rocket to start with. So that, of course, intrigued me and I decided to lead the an expedition to the Pacific Ocean, the location of this meteor, and uh, look for any materials left over from the explosion. We went there with a ship called the Silver Star, very fittingly, uh, and we built a sled uh, roughly a meter wide that had magnets on both sides to collect particles, magnetic particles from the bottom of the ocean. And how, how deep was it again, Avi? More than a mile. Yeah. So it's about two kilometers deep uh, down there uh, at the site. And the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense localized uh, the region to within uh, seven miles. Uh, and uh, so we were out to look for molten droplets from the object that uh, rained down on the ocean when the explosion took place and the object you know, was exposed to the immense heat uh, from the fireball that it created. Uh, and uh, those are millimeter-sized particles. That's what we calculated, eh, expected. So just think about how challenging it is to find millimeter-sized particles, size of a grain of sand, at uh, the bottom of the ocean, at a depth of more than a mile, uh, across a region which is seven miles in size. Uh, and we crisscrossed that region. We were guided also by some data from a seismometer uh, on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea uh, that provided the distance to the explosion based on the time delay in the arrival of the sound from the explosion. Um, and um, the, amazingly, we started collecting materials, magnetic particles, but most of them were volcanic ash. Uh, and then we filtered those volcanic ash particles, black powder, uh, using a mesh. Uh, with uh, a size of about a quarter of a millimeter. And we were left with bigger particles that we later looked at uh, with a microscope. And lo and behold, we found those molten droplets. We found uh, what are called the spherules. These are marbles uh, created uh, when a meteor uh, melts down. And, um, and so um, we found altogether 50 of them. I mean, I knew the minute we found the first one that, we will find more because it's just like finding ants in the kitchen. You know, you uh, you find the first one, you get alarmed. You know that there must be many more. So, uh, have was... you been hanging out in my kitchen, Professor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, actually hanging out in my kitchen quite often because when I married my wife, uh, we agreed that I would be responsible for washing the dishes. And of course, after we agreed on that, I, I bought a dishwasher. She said. Uh, well, I thought you would do it by hand. I said, well, that was not part of the deal. I can use equipment. Um, 
Anyway, um, the so, right tool uh, for the right task. Yes, Professor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we don't need to suffer if technology can solve some of our problems. If AI can write uh, things for us, uh, you know, we don't need the people to do that. Uh, we can uh, do other things that are of more interest to us. Anyway, um, coming back to the story, the, uh, I brought uh, the materials back to Harvard University and uh, you know, I needed to use uh, FedEx because I didn't want to carry it with my luggage so that it will not be lost uh, in customs. Um, so uh, uh, it, it arrived so, a few so days Professor, later. Hold on, like, if I could interrupt you. So you collected, um, and I, I've, I've heard this rumor, is this true? That what you're really doing here is you're trying to uh, 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 relaunch the 1980s movie Spaceballs. This is all a marketing stunt. Is that correct? <laughs> we had a filming crew on the deck, by the way. Um, uh, one out of 50, five zero, that wanted to be there. I had to select one. Um, so it, it was all documented, and hopefully the it, documentary will come out. There's a film uh, coming? In, well, in within a, a couple of years at, at most. I mean, but the timing depends on what comes next. Uh, so, but so, but you FedEx these space balls from Papua New Guinea back to Harvard? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, no, to, to my home. And I got them at my doorstep. Did you, get, did you make sure you wrote down the tracking number, Professor? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these, these materials were, uh, you know, we invested one and a half million dollars in the expedition. Um, it's not my money, but the donor... Uh, the donors' money, and so, and we put uh, two weeks uh, into the survey. So it was a huge amount of effort, you know, to to do the work. And before I went there, some colleagues said, um, you know, why would you do that? You, you have very little chance of finding anything. And I said, well, just sit back and relax. I'm not asking you to do anything. You know, I'm doing the heavy lifting. You just uh, wait for me to come back, and if I don't bring anything back, you just say I thought so. Um, anyway, uh, you know, we were f funded privately. It was not taking any money from other science projects. Uh, then uh, I got the materials by FedEx. Uh, they were delayed by a few days. Uh, I wasn't too worried about it because it took the, this material billions of years to arrive to Earth in the first place. So a few extra days is not uh, much of a delay. Uh, and then I gave the materials to my colleague at Harvard, the named uh, Stein Jacobson, who is a very conservative, professional uh, geochemist that has a lab with the best instruments in the world to analyze the composition of these ferals. And at the same time, I had a summer intern that was shadowing me. She, uh, her name is Sophie Bergstrom. She, wanted, she wants to become a science journalist, so she was following me. And at some point she said, uh, can I be of help for doing the science? And I said, of course. Uh, let us uh, arrange uh, tweezers and a microscope for you. You will search for more spherules that we may have missed while on the boat. And she found altogether uh, 620 something uh, spherules uh, in addition to the 50 that we had on the boat. So we have nearly 700 spherules, which is an amazing harvest. Uh, out of which we analyzed by now, two months later, we analyzed 57 in the laboratory of Stein Jacobson. And uh, those that we analyzed came from control regions far away from the meteor path, but also from the meteor path. We were able to make a plot, a map in our paper of 
the yield of spherules per unit mass retrieved, sort of like a treasure hunt map. And we saw that there are three uh, high yield regions and they were all along the meteor path. Uh, so presumably the excess spherules, the ones that were added to whatever was in the background came from this meteor. And what we found is that in these high yield regions, three of them, that they may represent the three flares that were observed from this uh, meteor. Um, they, the composition of the spheros collected in those runs that went through these regions uh, was nothing seen before in the scientific literature in terms of spherules. There were spheros of a completely new type uh, with an unusual composition. And the composition had um, enhanced uh, uh, abundances of some elements like beryllium, uh, lanthanum, uranium, and many elements between lanthanum and uranium. So we called it Belau for beryllium, lanthanum, and uranium. Um, Belau spherules. Uh, and um, you cannot find this composition on Earth, any materials on Earth, uh, the Moon, Mars, or asteroids that were seen before. And um, our suggestion is that this composition originated from a source outside the solar system. This is completely independent evidence uh, from the measurement of the speed of the object that indicates that it's uh, a foreign visitor. And it's the first time that humans put their hands on materials from a large object that came from outside the solar system. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I want to make sure I understand the sequencing of what has happened here. So my understanding of what you just said and my preparation for today is that um, the reason you ended up in Papua New Guinea is because the U.S. government, the federal government of the United States, said that roughly, you tell me, a decade ago, this thing, I don't know what to call it, uh, showed up here. And an the, object, an object, uh, you can call it an object. Yeah. Thank you, professor. So this object showed up and it was the position of the American government. Correct me if I'm misunderstanding, Avi, uh, that that this was an interstellar object. Is that correct? It was that was their position, not yours. Yeah. Am I remembering this correctly? Well, so first they just put the data publicly. And uh, five years later, I noticed this data because I was interviewed about another meteor uh, near Kamchatka that uh, uh, exploded in December 2018. And in preparation for that interview, I found this catalog of NASA that included this meteor from 2014. And um, that was a revelation for me. We wrote a scientific paper with my student about it. Uh, and then my colleagues did not uh, the reviewers did not allow the paper to be published. Uh, they basically argued that the U.S. government uh, made a mistake and it's not interstellar. And then uh, three years later, I mean, it takes government a long time to respond. Uh, the U.S. Space Command issued a letter to NASA saying that it's interstellar, the 99.99% confidence. Uh, they confirmed our finding. And then, of course, our paper was accepted for publication. And at that point, I started to uh, design the expedition to uh, bring in the team and uh, plan the, the uh, uh, sled uh, that we designed and also um, receive the funding and, and get everything organized. Um, so it is the U.S. Space Command that 
basically confirmed what we said, and the U.S. Department of Defense came to my defense in some sense. Uh, but nevertheless, that did not prevent astronomers uh, from saying just a couple of months ago that uh, it, it must be wrong, the data must be wrong, because they cannot fit this object with a model for uh, stony or iron meteorites, the type of objects we had seen before from the solar system. And, uh, you know, that's a very arrogant statement to make, given that the U.S. Space Command is uh, receiving more funding than NASA, and they are supposed to um, alert the U.S. president about any ballistic missiles. If they would routinely make mistakes by a factor of three, as was argued in this paper, that the speed is three times smaller, um, they would alert the president of Mexico for a missile heading towards Washington, D.C. Um, and moreover... But let's just hope he calls us if that happens. <laughs> you know, so now I sleep better at night because after coming back... You know they you know. know we, we, yeah, well, we found the materials. They don't look as if they are from the solar system. And so that confirms the assertion by the U.S. Space Command. And I just find it strange that scientists would argue that the data must be wrong because their model for stones does not fit it otherwise. You know, I was educated that if your model doesn't fit data, you should revise your model. But they are not that modest. They are so sure that everything in the sky must be stones. And I call that the stone age of science. <laughs> I love it. So, so I just want to be clear what's happening here. You are considered to be, if not the most, certainly one of the most high-profile uh, astronomers in the world, theoretical physicists in the world, and you are coming forward and saying not only was a muamua highly likely, potentially, certainly worth considering that it was a artifact from uh, technology, that is to say, from another uh, species or another group of whatevers on another planet. You're now saying that we have some kind of an object that came from outside of our solar system. The U.S. government has acknowledged it as being external to the solar system. And you went to Papua New Guinea and you collected 700 of these marbles. Mm -hmm. And you're now, you said tested 57, is that correct? Yes. And they're, they are nothing that we've ever seen before on Earth. Well, those, those, and to the uh, best of your knowledge, I mean, it's a mix. You have to understand there is a background of spherules uh, from other events in the past, but those spherules that were found in the along the meteor path in the high yield region, the excess spherules do look uh, as uh, different from uh, the background, and uh, they are not found anywhere else. We we went to control regions and didn't see such spherules there. So to me, that sounds like a smoking gun. And so um, you and your colleagues, if everything you're saying is correct, and let's just assume for a second that it is, you and your colleagues were the first people to not only retrieve, but to look at and to touch something that came from outside of our solar system. That's correct. Yes. And that's why it's so significant. And the next question is whether it was technological in origin. And of course, for that, we might uh, want to find a bigger piece of the object, which we are planning to do in the next expedition. Uh, it will require different machinery that allows us to uh, image the ocean floor. 
perhaps a sonar. It would be more expensive. But now that we know that this object came from interstellar space, it's worthwhile. Uh, and we are starting the planning uh, of the next expedition. And I'm very excited. You know, it's just like a detective story, uh, figuring out what this object was. And, uh, you know, anyone that uh, is pushing back uh, lacks uh, curiosity. You know, why should we uh, pretend to know more uh, without seeking the evidence? Uh, the biggest uh, trauma that I had as a kid, uh, the most frustrating uh, experience was to sit at the dinner table and ask a difficult question. And then the adults in the room uh, would dismiss the question. And I felt bad because they were not sincere. They were just uh, pretending to know more without actually knowing more. So I thought to myself, well, maybe if I become a scientist, you know, I can uh, find the answers myself. And the way I see myself now is just like as a curious kid. Uh, but what I find that uh, even with, uh, by pursuing science, I still see a lot of my colleagues behaving as if they are the adults in the room and they know the answer in advance without uh, being open-minded. So nothing much changed since those days at the dinner table. Well, <laughs> and, and this is a little bit where I scratch my head, uh, Avi, which is um, you're not some weirdo with a YouTube channel in his parents' basement, <laughs> right? I mean, if you no. were, this might be interesting. You're a very articulate weirdo in your basement, but but you are not that. You're the top astronomer at Harvard. And so here's what I don't understand. If I compare this, I was trying to think about analogies. So I was remembering back to when uh, we discovered the Titanic and how... What, what news that was and the first explorations and then ongoing and, and development of this and the, all of the stuff about it. It's been huge news. It's been covered. It's been incredible. It's been fascinating for all of us. And yet you coming forward and saying that we have actually found interstellar um, material here on earth has not been covered anywhere near as much, although it's been covered a lot, but nowhere near as much. And you've been treated by many as though you're a crazy person in your parents' basement with a YouTube channel. <laughs> Help me understand what's going on here, Professor. Well, um, many of those uh, who attack me, they don't have uh, the same scientific stature and they are trying to get attention by attacking me. Uh, and I adopt the approach of the eagle, uh, which is basically when, you know, the eagle has a crow uh, sitting on its back and the crow is pecking on the neck of the eagle. The eagle doesn't try to push the crow off the back. Uh, the eagle just uh, flies to greater heights where the oxygen level is lower and the crow cannot uh, stay around and drops off the back. Um, and so to me, the highest, uh, the greatest heights uh, are offered by doing the science correctly, uh, collecting the materials, studying them in the laboratory, and writing a scientific paper uh, about the findings. And what I find is, I mean, my hope was that these crows will drop off my back and stop pecking my neck. But now they see the scientific paper. They don't read it carefully. They just make superficial uh, assessments about uh, the findings. 
And that is frustrating because even by practicing science the way it should be done, you find people who call themselves scientists uh, and have a clear agenda of dismissing the discussion on this subject. And the, obviously the evidence for that is because they were all along with the same opinion. Before I went there, they said, I will not find anything. When I came back, they said, you didn't find anything. When I wrote a scientific paper that reported about what I found, they say, oh, this is nothing. This is just solar system materials. And they are behaving in a very superficial way uh, and they're using you know, language that is not professional, uh, calling me names. Uh, I don't want to respond to that. Uh, because that will give them even more importance than they deserve. Uh, but I find it frustrating because the conversation is not very intelligent. Uh, it's not about the substance. It's more about um, them pushing back and appearing in articles about me. And if you want to see that, you can just look at the two um, articles that appeared over the past month in the New I York read Times. them both. Yeah, one of them in July and the second in the New York Times Magazine, a profile. Uh, you don't see scientists featured in the New York Times magazine. Just go back decades and tell me who you found. Um, what you find usually are people with uh, uh, a lot of public's attention, like singers, artists, um, and uh, or, or politicians. Um, I'm trying to bring science uh, to uh, a subject that is of great interest to the public. And therefore, I get more attention. You know, one of my colleagues said uh, to the Crimson at Harvard, uh, he said, uh, well, uh, it's about time that reporters pay more attention to boring science. And I thought to myself, what is he talking about? Like, why should reporters pay attention to boring science? Maybe you should do something that the public cares about. Um, and this person uh, uh, defined himself as a Harvard astrophysicist. He's not affiliated with Harvard. Well, then maybe I can call myself a Harvard uh, uh, academic. Of By the way, you, uh, the, the, the other thing I see is people who are popularizing science, bloggers and the popularizers, and they call themselves astrophysicists. And then you check their track record. They haven't published a scientific paper in more than a decade. Okay, so one of these bloggers, you know, I said, you know, why should I respond to this blogger who calls himself an astrophysicist when he does not practice science? He just talks about science. There is a big difference between talking about something and doing it. Just think about the audience in a soccer match. I mean, the audience can say to the soccer players, you know, you should, you should have passed the ball this way or that way. But it's not for them to say that because they are not on the field. You know, and uh, uh, pretending that you're on the field by calling yourself an astrophysicist is just inappropriate. Nevertheless, this person, even though I didn't mention his name, decided to put my comment as the Twitter handle uh, that they would attract more followers for him, as if he's bragging about his non-professional practice. The fact that he doesn't, <laughs> he said, I'm the blogger who didn't publish for a decade. Like, as if this is something to be proud of. My point is very simple. Uh, there is a, a clear difference between talking about science and doing science. And I'm doing science. I'm talking about it just to educate the public about the process. When I was at the Pacific Ocean, uh, I wrote uh, diary reports and published them in medium.com. There were millions of people around the world who followed them. 
And they were excited to see how science is done because for them, it's just like a detective story. Yes. And they connect to that. But my colleagues were saying, why would you talk about the science when it's actually done? You should wait until your paper gets published. And I said, no, because when you have a press conference after the paper gets accepted for publication, uh, often the situation is similar to, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the scientists behaving like lecturers in a class, in a classroom uh, and telling the public the truth that they uncovered. But that feels like an occupation of the elite. Uh, it's much better to show science as work in progress where you make mistakes and where you are trying to figure out the answers by collecting evidence, just like a detective does. And people connect to that uh, because it looks like a human endeavor. And that's what I feel from the response of the public. But I'm actually talking about science that I'm doing, right? A lot of my critics are not doing any science. They're just talking about it. And that's a very big difference. There's a big, it, there's a corollary here that maybe um, I wonder if anybody shared with you. So in the past, in the software business, in the technology business, the thinking was we raise a bunch of money, we start a company to do something incredible, we go off, we're in quote unquote stealth mode, we're in stealth mode for several years, we don't tell anybody, we make everybody sign all these NDAs and da 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 da, and then one day we have this giant ta-da. And that was the thinking for a long time. The thinking today, while uh, that is still appropriate for certain things, for many things today, younger entrepreneurs in the tech industry, uh, professor, are doing what they call building in public. And they are sharing their quote-unquote journey. And it's not always appropriate for everybody. However, it is compelling for many to see the inside working of how a new technology gets developed, how a new company gets created, how the team comes together, the failures, the successes, the, the hopes, the dreams, the, 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 the terrors along the way. Um, the creation of the thing is almost as interesting and to some even more interesting than the thing. We, we, we do this. Uh, one of the things we teach is the content about the content is more important than the content. That's right. And so you've been saying this for years. There's the old Carl Sagan, you know, great claims require great evidence or something along those lines, which seems to me as a non-academic or, or scientist, what we're saying is if we're going to make a bold claim, we better have the evidence, peer review, all the things that we've all learned for years. You're saying a different thing, which is if we have an insight, we have some early data that suggests this is an outlier. We should jump on this thing. And we should consider all possibility, starting with that it could be alien, and try to rule that out, as opposed to what I think is mostly the method, which is have a hypothesis and try to kind of rule it in. And so you're essentially building science in public, doing science in public, uh, and being criticized as a uh, P.T. Barnum for doing it. <laughs> Yeah, I should say, um, you know, this statement that uh, people bring up, uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The problem is those people who say that they are not seeking the evidence. You know, it started with Enrico Fermi, who said, where is everybody 70 years ago, which is just like a single person standing at home and saying, I don't have a partner. Look, there is nobody around me. But all of us know that in order to find a partner, you need to go to dating sites. You need to check your mailbox. You need to go out from your home to your backyard and see if there are any packages, any anything that came from uh, the street. 
you can't just uh, not get engaged by saying, I don't have evidence. It's a circular argument. And um, the key is to look for the evidence, to search for it. Now, my colleagues understand that. Why do I say that? Because uh, take another example of dark matter. You know, for 90 years, it was clear there is a substance in the universe which is far more abundant than the material we experienced with uh, in the solar system. Okay, and this is a substance we don't know what it is. We just know that it exists, makes up 83% of the matter in the universe. We call it dark matter. And my colleagues understand that they cannot say dark matter is an extraordinary claim that requires extraordinary evidence. They say, well, let's find out what it is. Okay, so uh, you know we spent billions of dollars in, in the latest incarnation. It was the Large Hadron Collider that cost the ten billion dollars looking for supersymmetry. We've searched for dark matter in many different ways. We haven't found it. Okay, now the key here is that we did it for decades, invested billions of dollars but still didn't find it. So it's not as if someone said it's an extraordinary claim that has no evidence, therefore we should do nothing about it. People, you know, tried to get the evidence. And uh, in the context of, so it never falls into your lap. You know, think about also gravitational waves. It was, you know, people didn't say that we haven't detected that, therefore it's an extraordinary claim. They said, let's go and find it. Uh, and, it, you know, it was decades of effort a uh, billion dollars in investment in the LIGO collaboration. And eventually we found it after a very long period of development search and so forth. And what I, I'm saying is we are not investing those funds in the search for objects from other technological civilizations. In fact, I have to raise my own uh, private donations. There is no money allocated to this search, yet you have people saying uh, it requires extraordinary evidence before they will get engaged. Well, that's a circular argument. You will never find the evidence otherwise. So, uh, but, but Professor, point, I hate to interrupt you on this. Haven't you just found the evidence? I mean, I, I'm yeah. sitting here talking so to, I, the, I, to the yeah, man exactly. who, who held interstellar <laughs> freaking balls. <laughs> yeah, so when I came back with the materials, now they are saying you didn't find anything. I find that really... Um, uh, non-scientific, not professional. But haven't you been able to prove, Professor, that the materials, the marbles, are some kind of a, you've described them as an alloy that we've not seen. Yes, we've seen components of them, but we've not seen this kind of an alloy. The fact that it's an alloy is suggestive to you. I'm paraphrasing what I think I've, I've, I've consumed of yours. Because it feels like an alloy, that suggest it's suggestive of that it was made by something unnatural, that is to say, other beings. Is that correct? Well, uh, we don't know it for sure yet, but there are two possible interpretations, either an environment very different uh, than uh, we are familiar with in the solar system, uh, that is the natural origin. Uh, there are some challenges to that. I discuss it in the paper. But the second possibility is indeed that these uh, elements were put, you know, just like uh, ingredients in a cake, the you mix them together and you get something that is useful technologically. And actually, right uh, this morning, I was thinking about uh, uh, putting these elements together like a recipe for a cake and seeing what kind of substance one gets. Uh, and uh, that can be done in the laboratory. It can also be done on, on the computer because we have uh, AI uh, models for materials. And um, 
that would be something I will pursue trying to figure out what what it means. But obviously, if we had a bigger piece, uh, we could easily tell the difference between a rock and a gadget. And we hope to get that piece and see what it looks like. Um, and so, so you believe there's uh, a reasonable chance, obviously, you're going back, that you'll find something bigger than these small particles that might be a further breakthrough in understanding what was this thing that that hit our planet roughly a decade yeah, because, ago. Yeah, uh, because we don't know what the size of the initial object. All we know is that its um, uh, outer layer was uh, evaporated or, or melted. Uh, but it could have been a bigger object that had a core that survived the impact and can be found on the ocean floor. That's something we don't know. And so I, I, my interpretation is you're suggesting maybe this was some kind of a probe the way we send probes out into space. Um, could you sort of open that up a little bit for me as to what, yeah. what you think this might be? Yeah, so the, there are two types of uh, technological objects that you can imagine in interstellar space. One is space trash, uh, which is pretty much what we sent so far because when the Voyager, Pioneer, or New Horizons exit the solar system within 10,000 years, they will not be functional anymore. So we are just polluting interstellar space with trash. Uh, and uh, it, you can think of it just like plastics in the ocean. Uh, these objects will accumulate over time because they are bound by gravity to the Milky Way galaxy. And over billions of years, all the trash thrown by technological civilizations will be there. Um, and uh, of course, every now and then, such an object will collide with Earth. So that may be this uh, interstellar meteor. Uh, if people have uh, a question of why would it crash if it was technological, it's because it's not functioning anymore. So um, and uh, so that's what uh, I can imagine this object being like. But in addition to, to trash, you might find uh, also functioning devices. These are objects that uh, were sent out uh, across large distances, thousands of light years, and they are still working. Uh, and they might have a brain in the form of artificial intelligence. I, I have a hard time imagining a biological creature sitting inside the an interstellar um, the, uh, probe because um, it, it takes the journey takes millions to billions of years and uh, biology as we know it would not survive such a journey so it's more likely you know that uh, such uh, systems would be equipped with artificial intelligence because then they can decide by themselves there is no way for them to wait for guidance from the sender because even light, you know, that, that moves at the fastest possible speed uh, takes, uh, you know, thousands of years or tens of thousands of years uh, to cross the Milky Way galaxy, depending on where the sender is. So uh, these would be autonomous devices that think for themselves with AI. Uh, and, you know, the U.S. government is talking about some objects they don't understand. And there was a hearing in the House of Representatives about it. There is a new office uh, in the Pentagon, the Old Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which uh, the deputy uh, uh, just decided uh, will have a new website where they collect all reports about such uh, anomalous objects and share them publicly. Uh, so um, it's really intriguing, the possibility that there might be uh, uh, some functioning devices near Earth. 
uh, it's but it's all about evidence. You see, we we have to collect that evidence and then see what it means. Uh, there is no point in deciding about the protocol how to interact with a visitor until you see the visitor in your backyard, because uh, you know there could be many different types of visitors. Yes, and so let me just ask a simple pr- human question: What did it feel like to see and touch? these artifacts well that was thrilling you know um i wrote after the sixth day i wrote an essay uh you know one of my diary reports was uh, titled where are the spherules i was asking sincerely again i'm not hiding anything i'm just uh, speaking honestly so we didn't find the spherules until then i was saying where are they uh and of course uh, i was worried that we will not find anything and then uh, the following day, uh, the geologist of the team uh, ran down the stairs from the analysis room and uh, called me. I was the chief uh, scientist on the ship uh, and said, Avi, you have to come up. Where we just found the, the first spheral uh, on the microscope. Uh, and uh, I rushed up and I looked at it and I hugged the person who saw it first, uh, Ryan Weed. And he was surprised. I said to him, look, we were looking for this uh, all along. And, um, and then, of course, after that, we found many more. So that was thrilling to me. But that by itself was not enough because um, we had to examine the spherules from the location of the meteor uh, and see if they are different from solar system spherules. And that's what we did after we came back to Harvard. You know, altogether, there were many failure points that one can imagine. And I just feel lucky uh, that uh, and grateful that uh, everything worked out because, you know, we could have decided to go there, but then wouldn't have the funding. Uh, we could have decided to assemble a team, but not have the best professionals in the world. Uh, the sled that we designed could have not worked. Uh, the meteor may have not produced enough spherules for us to find anything, given that the you know, we surveyed a small fraction of the area. Um, and then uh, we wouldn't have, we could have found the spherules, but not have access to the best mass spectrometer in the world that would tell us that they have an unusual composition. And I asked the coordinator of the expedition, I said, you brought the champagne on the ship. Why did you do that? Because we, you know, we didn't know that we would be successful. And he said, I'm an optimist. So, you know, the, the lesson from that is it's worth taking risks in life, in science, because sometimes you succeed. Uh, and um, life is very often a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think that you will not succeed, you will not find anything. If you don't search, you will not find anything. So it's better to be an optimist. It's interesting. Uh, every innovator, every creator, every entrepreneur, every scientist that I can think of, of consequence, had that exploration mindset, that open, open to the possible. And so maybe let's shift to, there's been a lot of discussion, um, some in Israel, uh, a listener of ours sent me an article about how um, the security chief has come out in Israel and talked about extra ter- extraterrestrials and that we may be some part of some kind of an alliance or 
And of course, there's been a lot of discussion here in the United States. You mentioned Congress and so forth. And so really, just in the last very short period of time, uh, this has gone to from being uh, kind of for crazies at a weird festival to something that's being um, uh, thought of very differently. And so where do you think we're at, uh, Professor, in terms of are we alone? Have they been here? Where are we on these big questions? Oh, I think we are getting closer to figuring out if there is any material evidence for that, for, for a package that has a postal address from uh, outside the solar system. Um, and uh, what this package entails, that remains to be seen. But it's possible the government collected some pass, uh, packages like that already, and we just don't know about it. That's what David Grush was talking about at the hearing uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. The fact that we are talking about it publicly in Washington, D.C. is interesting, but I still want to see the evidence because I'm happy to look at it once it's uh, shared and uh, help the government figure it out. Uh, that's you know my role as a scientist, to attend to the interests of the government, the public, um, and what's special about this time is that we are getting closer to collecting relevant evidence. Uh, just over the past decade, we discovered the first interstellar objects. Now uh, there is a house, you know, there is a, a the next uh, defense bill that was discussed in the House of Representatives that uh, will include the, the establishment of a new department, including nine people that would look into any data the government has on unidentified anomalous phenomena. So altogether, you know, I think we might be at the cusp of a new revelation. And, you know, if, if, the, if, if the information comes from the depths of the Pacific Ocean, you know, we can do it ourselves without waiting for government. If it comes from government, uh, you know, it may take a different form. Maybe there will be a State of the Union address by the president, starting with the words, uh, my fellow Americans, we are not alone. Fascinating. I also, I want you to know, I think about you much. And in our last conversation, uh, I asked you, if Oumuamua was alien technology, why wouldn't it come to visit? Why wouldn't it say hello in some form? And I remember the answer you gave me, because I think about this a lot, Professor. The answer you gave me was when we're walking down the street and we look down at our feet and we see a bunch of ants, do we stop? Do we say, hello, how are you? Do we? No, we just keep going because who gives a shit? They're ants. I I'm paraphrasing you, of course. No, that's exactly right. And when I see ants now, I often think of you, particularly the <laughs> ones that happen to be in my kitchen right now. And so I guess my my question is, has 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 this this discovery changed any of your thinking about would aliens be interested in checking us out? Well, one thing we have to keep in mind that uh, we are not that important. You see, we just came to the scene a few million years ago, the human species. That's one part in 10,000 of the age of the universe. And uh, we are not at the center of stage. So if you come to a play uh, at the end of the play and you're not at the center of stage, the play is not about you. And you better seek other actors to figure out what the play is about because they may have had more time to figure it out. And, you know, the, speaking about ants, um, 
Elon Musk uh, commented in a, an interview he had uh, this uh, summer that um, um, you know he is the space guy and he would know uh, if uh, there is any evidence for aliens, but um, he knows what he finds within uh, the inner solar system, uh, which is not uh, lo looking through telescopes. He just you know is planning to uh, go to Mars and so forth. You know his statement is uh, very limited in its uh, uh, you know, uh, perspective because um, uh, the region in the inner solar system that he's talking about is only one part in 10 to the 15, a quadrillion uh, of, the eight, of the size of the universe. And it's just like an ant serving uh, uh, the head of a pin and making a statement about the most distant planet of the solar system. That's the ratio of scales, 10 to the power 15. And, you know, that would be a very presumptuous ant. Uh, that's what I say about <laughs> Elon Musk. He's a very presumptuous ant. <laughs> and just to make sure my thinking is where you want it to be, there's roughly, I'm just looking at what they printed in the New York Times, uh, a quote unquote, a couple billion planets that are similar to our own. And of course, the, the the headline we hear is that there are more planets like Earth than there are grains of sand on Earth. And that is a factual statement, best we know. Yes, Professor? Yes. And so one of the things that we've talked about in the past, I've heard you say you've written about much, is how arrogant and presumptuous it is of us in a, in a universe of, of several uh, a billion options that are like ours to think that we are either alone or or we are the most sophisticated thing around. Yes, exactly. Uh, but uh, another factoid is that uh, most of the stars form billions of years before the sun. And uh, it takes about half a billion years to traverse the Milky Way galaxy with the chemical rockets that uh, we launched to space. So they had plenty of time. If they started the technological clock a few billion years before us, they had uh, plenty of time to reach us by now. And that's what I'm looking for. And so what's what's next, Avi? What what happens next in your, as, as you continue, I was sort of thinking about this. Um, are you the Indiana Jones of space now? Is that, is that, is that what we call you? <laughs> well, actually, yeah. The, the documentary uh, filming crew that uh, came with me on the ship, uh, they, uh, they wanted me to uh, start the filming uh, in a in a classroom, the last class that I gave at Harvard, because that's the way that Indiana Jones movies start with the professor in the class and then going to the treasure hunt. Well, and do you have the hat? Or if I bought you a really nice <laughs> hat, would you would you wear it? <laughs> well, yeah, they, they brought me a hat and they brought me some clothing that I had did. They to bring wear you a whip too. Do you have a whip? You got to have the whip. <laughs> no, I don't have that. Uh, although it's necessary when you educate kids um, sometimes. <laughs> but uh, um, no, I mean, uh, the analogy just goes, um, you know, up to a point. And um, I'm not trying to be anyone else, you know. I'm just trying to follow what looks to me like common sense. And my frustration is that common sense is not common. Yes, amen. And so the next step, you're going back to Papua New Guinea, Yes. Exactly. Well, that's the hope, yeah, in the next uh, expedition to look for bigger pieces. And yes. will it be with the same sled, new sled, both sled? Like oh, no. Tell me about how the new expedition is, is shaping up. 
Yeah, so we are currently in the early phases of uh, planning it. And the hope is to have an imaging device that can tell us uh, what we see on the ocean floor, that can tell the difference between rocks, uh, basaltic rocks that re resulted from volcanic activity and uh, something that came from outside the solar system. Uh, and it, it's challenging, but we have ideas about the equipment that we might use. And we're currently sorting out which equipment would be best, maybe a sonar um, with the right uh, frequency, but uh, it will be more expensive. Because what you need really is like a, help me with the analogy here, uh, Avi, the difference between maybe an X-ray and an MRI, you want to MRI the ocean floor at a big, uh, a deep, deep level of detail. Yeah, so the MRI is a good example of uh, imaging, uh, but not, yeah, the difference is not with x-rays, but with a probe that you send down uh, that is not very smart. I mean, that was the sled that was a relatively dumb approach, just taking, uh, you know, a piece of metal with the magnets on both sides, dropping it on the ocean floor. We didn't have the ability to see what the, it is probing in real time. We had some video cameras um, on the sled, but we only examined them after we brought the sled back uh, on deck. Um, so, I mean, this was the approach that worked, uh, but it was not very sophisticated. We just uh, pulled the sled with a cable connected the, to the ship and uh, the length of the cable was more than three miles. Um, and uh, the next uh, expedition will probably use a much better uh, instrument that has uh, that relays the video images in real time and we could see what we are uh, going through and select the objects of interest uh, and but it will cost much more so um, we should first we have to choose the instruments then we see the price tag and then we have to find potential donors that will support it yes and so i remember our last conversation you were early in a discussion with a group of billionaires that led to, I believe, then Galileo. Um, and so yes. you now seem to uh, have a demonstrated track record and maybe you're learning some things about raising a lot of money. The, the side note about that, uh, you know, if you think about, about the, 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 the 50s and the 60s and ultimately the moon landing and so forth, one of the things that often does not get spoken about is the breakthroughs in new categories of technology and new categories of thinking that were required for us to land on the moon originally, of course, led to many other breakthroughs in different domains, right? Many of them, of course, in computing, in math, in science, and in lots of other technology. So as a side note, I wonder, you know, if I was, a, if I was an incredibly rich person and we wanted to give you $100 million or some giant amount of money to go do this, I'd also be thinking about, okay, are the technologies that... Avi and co are having to build and collaborate on building, they will have utility or they will lead to things that will have utility in unexpected breakthrough ways. Does that, does that seem, do you see that happening already? Yeah. I mean, um, for example, you know, astronomers are looking at the sky for centuries uh, and uh, they always use the same uh, approach of looking at a small piece of the sky and looking at sources that are very far away. Now, in the context of those unidentified anomalous phenomena, uh, these are objects fi uh, flying across the sky. So what you need to do is have a view of the entire sky at all times. 
which is a completely different type of observatory that was never attempted before. So the Galileo project that I established uh, is doing just that. We assembled a completely new uh, observatory at Harvard University that is uh, scanning the entire sky at all times, and we use uh, machine learning software to figure out if the objects we are finding are uh, birds, uh, drones, balloons, airplanes. So it's all new. It's a, a virgin territory because nobody built such a thing before. And uh, also with respect to the expedition, you know, um, astronomers used telescopes in the past to figure out what lies outside the solar system. We're using microscopes, not telescopes, to figure it out. It's a completely different window into what lies outside the solar system. We have the second uh, interstellar meteor that is located uh, somewhere near uh, Portugal, between Portugal and the Azores, that we might visit as well. Uh, so I see it as a new frontier, uh, both in terms of um, exploring what, you know, what kind of objects arrive to our doorstep from far away, uh, but also developing instrumentation that uh, was never used before. So exactly to your point. And, and that's, I think that's a big, exciting thing about what you're doing. You're going to learn what you're going to le- learn about what you want to learn about, which is what are these objects? Where are they potentially from? What are they made of? Et cetera, et cetera. All the questions that us laymans would have. Uh, and the other thing is you're going to end up spinning off a whole bunch of breakthrough technologies that we probably wouldn't, you know, mother or necessity is the mother of invention. And so I find that part of it um, incredibly exciting as well. Um, what is it? You're a missionary. You, you speak about this a lot. You're very public. What is it? Why is this mission, especially in terms of what you're doing publicly facing, not in the background with the work itself, but you've also, unlike a lot of scientists, a lot of researchers, you're being very public about sharing all of this. And you seem to be on a mission about the education and the communication part of it. What is that mission? What do do you want us to get from all of this? Well, first of all, I don't feel uh, different than uh, any person in the public. Uh, I just, I was given the privilege of uh, following my curiosity. And I I don't pretend, I don't manipulate people. I don't pretend I know more. I don't pretend that I'm smarter. I just want to figure out, you know, uh, the reality that we all share. And uh, I think that's a very basic instinct that, you know, all of us as kids used to have. But unfortunately, some of these kids uh, mature to become adults that uh, are showing off. They don't want to expose their weaknesses. When I look at adults, I am trying to see the kid behind them. Uh, It's not always easy. Um, And um, I want to preserve that sense of curiosity, and I want to foster it in the public and also let the public know that science is not an occupation of the elite. It's actually a natural human instinct to, out of curiosity, figure out the world. And there is a great benefit that comes with it because once you understand the reality that we all share, then you can adapt to it. If you realize that the Earth is not at the center of the universe, then you can develop space programs that will enable you to reach Mars. If you insisted that we are at the center of the solar system, you would never reach Mars with a spacecraft. You know, And the, the same is true 
about anything. You know, like uh, if you insist that, uh, uh, you know, we live in some extra dimensions that were never seen before, or there is no experimental evidence, but you work on that for decades, like the mainstream in theoretical physics is doing. Uh, okay, well, that to me sounds like a plumber that you ask, uh, please fix my faucet at home. Uh, and the plumber says, no, that's too difficult. But if you put goggles on your head and you imagine that you are in the metaverse, there I can solve all your plumbing problems. And, uh, you know, that is not very, I mean, I would never pay such a plumber uh, uh, because, um, you know, if a string theorists cannot tell us what happened before the Big Bang or what happens inside the black hole, you know, they're not solving problems in the reality that we all share. They're just talking about realities that we haven't yet experienced. And that's not the same, okay? Uh, and so I feel that as a scientist, it's our duty to understand the reality that we all share and not talk about things that we don't see, like the metaverse or the multiverse or extra dimensions or wormholes. We haven't seen those. We don't know if they exist. Uh, and when an, a mysterious object shows up and looks anomalous, we have a responsibility to figure it out. So what you find right now in academia is exactly the reverse. You have a large community of theoretical physicists working on abstract notions that make them feel proud of their intelligence. They feel that the public cannot really understand them because they're very intelligent, but they don't work on things that are relevant to the reality that we all share. And I feel that is unfortunate. And moreover, in academia, uh, people talk about diversity uh, in terms of socioeconomic background and uh, gender and uh, a lot of other things, which are very important. But at the same time, there should be diversity of opinions. Uh, it's important to engage in a dialogue between people that don't agree um, and uh, we see that in politics, that there is this polarization, that people belong to tribes. It shouldn't be true in academia. It shouldn't be true in science. We should engage with different points of view. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the reality in academia right now. Except as it comes uh, towards you. <laughs> and I, I <laughs> yeah. deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate it. Could you do this if you weren't tenured? No. Not possible. No. And, uh, you know, the message that is being sent to young people is that if you want to get tenured, if you want honors award, you shouldn't really deviate from the beaten path. That's a very bad message. And, uh, you know, when I jog every morning, I see uh, signs in the backyards of my neighbors, and they always say the things that the other neighbors agree on. I call that virtue signaling. Uh, what I think is a contribution to changing, uh, to, to making a difference is if you were to take a sign and put it in a neighborhood that doesn't agree with you, because then you may, you know, change something. You might be able to convince those people of a different argument, but that is not done. And that's exactly what you find in academia where people are just saying the same things that everyone else is saying. You know, I was once uh, at a PhD defense of a student. And uh, the student was uh, developing a model that would allow to test the prevailing paradigm of a certain type of dark matter. And I asked, uh, okay, suppose the experiment shows something else. What would you do then? And the answer was, uh, then the model needs to be revised because clearly 
the dark matter is most likely to be of that type. And I found that to be quite uh, disheartening because if you have data that violates a theoretical idea, you should be able to uh, you know, depart from that uh, conventional wisdom and explore other possible explanations. Uh, so once again, we're back to the fact that everyone has to think alike in academia, which is unfortunate because the whole purpose of the tenure system was to allow freedom of thought so people can explore without worrying about their job prospects. The irony, though, I think I hear in what you're saying is in order to achieve tenure, I have to fit in. Right. But the reason I want tenure is so I'm free to stand out to do different. Yeah. And th- but this is, seems like a... some kind of a weird dichotomy. Uh, I have to play some kind of pre game and make everybody happy so that I can go do things that may not make everybody happy that are truly uh, research oriented. Yeah, you have to dance to the tunes of selection committees to be promoted. And that's what I did uh, early on. Um, By itself, that's not such a bad feature because even Picasso, you know, he started his paintings as realistic, the way art was done before him, paintings were done before him. Uh, And then uh, once he mastered that, he developed cubism, which deviated. It was a complete... uh, completely new form of art. And um, it's okay to start by reproducing what others were doing, uh, getting tenure, and then being more creative. Unfortunately, those who get tenure do not create uh, new uh, forms of art like cubism, new forms of um, uh, science, uh, because they are trapped in this mentality of pleasing others. And um, that is the unfortunate fact, because... I think um, innovation should be cultivated, um, most importantly in academia, where there is no practical benefit, it's not done for profit. And uh, instead, what you find is in the private sector, which is for profit, you often find a lot of innovation, including the development of AI most recently. Yes. Anything specific you want to say about AI before we wrap, uh, Avi? Oh, I think uh, that's the biggest step forward. Uh, You know, I asked a psychologist who came to my office, what made us different from chimpanzees? You know, humans came from chimpanzees. He said, it's the language uh, that we have. And now we develop these large language models that uh, gave birth to chat GPT and so forth. Uh, And uh, we are making a giant step forward in these systems becoming more complex than the human brain. Uh, In a way, uh, they will have more connections than the number of synapses in the human brain. So we're embarking on the next giant step forward. Since the time that humans came out of chimpanzees, now AI systems come out of humans. We are creating something in our own image. Uh, And the question is, what will it be? It's definitely alien to the way we think. Uh, And... uh, and uh, you know we should see we should see what happens in the years to come. But it, it's really important that our legal system will adapt to that because in the future there will be you know potentially crime committed by the AI technology uh, and uh, not necessarily by those who trained it. Uh, and the way I see it is you educate your kids for a certain period of time, then you let them go and they become adults that are responsible for their own actions. And the same 
methodology sh should be applied to AI systems if they, you know, after the training period, they become uh, destructive to society. We should incorporate some uh, new laws uh, in 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 our legal system that deals with that. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And I find it interesting that people want to stop the innovation because they're afraid of what could happen, as opposed to trusting that we as human beings will create new innovations, we'll use those new innovations, we'll see what happens. We have existing laws, right? So you're not supposed to kill people, you're not supposed to rob people, you're not supposed to do these things. They still apply in AI. And if laws right. need to be updated, that's great. But there are some people, including your friend Elon, who called for stopping AI until we get a bunch of this thinking sorted well, out. What, what do you think about that? I think that these are probably uh, people who are not very good parents because uh, as a parent, you're used to the idea that your kids are unpredictable in some sense, but you're doing your best to educate them with the right principles. So rather than say, let's stop giving birth to kids because we can't control them, you know, what happens is that good parents, good parenting, is providing your kids with proper education, with the, the guiding principles, the blueprint that will bring them to contributing to society rather than destroying society. And that's what we should aim at. Rather than limiting the birth of AI systems, uh, we should instead train them properly rather than exposing them to all the internet that has a lot of crime. You know, you don't take your kid to a street corner uh, to meet with a gangster or to see crimes done uh, in the dark, that's not good education. But these AI systems are being trained on the internet at large and they see all the misbehavior of people who are doing bad things. So obviously they will not necessarily be uh, the most just and uh, aligned with our principles. You need to think about educating them properly, guiding them, training them properly so that they would follow the behavior that you wish to see. And then... Um, you know, it's just like parenting. I don't see any difference. Mm. Uh, and uh, because we have any, you know, that dealing with intelligent systems is like dealing with people. Yes. And so what do you think of the many school systems in the United States which have banned GPT, banned Google Bard and, and, and other AI uh, technologies? I don't think that's right. I think we should adapt uh, to the new reality and we should shape the AI systems so that they serve us and help us. Just like when the calculator came out, you know, uh, people worried that um, we, we, we may not remember how to multiply numbers and it will be devastating. Also, when the printing press started, there was a lot of concern. Uh, you know, whenever a new technology comes out, uh, there is there are concerns, but instead we should accept it, embrace it, and try to adapt to it. And for example, you know, the humanities, if you look at the philosophy departments in many universities, they continue to teach uh, the ancient Greeks uh, as a mandatory course. And the ancient Greeks, you know, they didn't have computers. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have AI, social media. The thing is, these new developments pose new ethical uh, challenges. And we better teach philosophers about these challenges so that they can help us solve those problems rather than teach them about the past, what the ancient Greeks thought. We should say, here are the challenges for the future, AI, social media. You know, we don't want to embark uh, on these new technologies without 
uh, uh, putting some restrictions on the way they are used. Uh, look at the mental health problem of teenagers that came out of social media. Um, and instead, you know, the philosophers must contribute to the, you know, the ethics of AI, the ethics of social media, uh, psychologists as well. There is an opportunity for them to become relevant. And uh, I don't think they recognize it. In fact, at Harvard, haven't seen many courses being offered on AI and its ethical implications in philosophy, in the philosophy department. Right. That's fascinating. I, I got to believe that in your world, um, AI is, has the potential to be a massive unlock in understanding the universe and maybe helping us understand things about black holes that we've spent billions of dollars and don't understand. Maybe, maybe all of a sudden, if we take all the data from all the things that the government is now telling us that, that, that have come here that may have been uh, uh, from outside the solar system. Well, imagine if we created a database of that. Imagine if that became training data and we could look for patterns in that. And imagine AI is helping you with these various different probes and various different sensors and cameras and the like that you're able to put on the ocean's floor and on and on and on. My mind goes to a zillion places. If, if I was with you, if I was on your team, how we could use AI to, to, to produce a breakthrough in our understanding of, uh, of all of the things that you're interested in. Uh, am I, as a layman, am I, am I directionally right on this stuff? Yeah, I completely agree. And the most important thing is that AI uh, is able to process a huge amount of data and uh, reach a conclusion that is not necessarily tied up to the ego of the system, which is very much characterizing uh, human scientists. You know, the, the, for example, if the AI would analyze the data on a muumua, my hope is that the AI would say, well, it looks very different from rocks we had seen before. And there would not be any issue to do with, uh, you know, uh, the expertise of the system, knowing that in the past we detected only stones and, and iron meteorites for it to say the data must be wrong, it must be a stone. Um, the kind of things you see when humans are analyzing the data, they show strong bias in favor of past knowledge. And the AI system may acknowledge that we are looking at something anomalous. And uh, that's why it's so valuable because yes. you remove the human bias. And by the way, you know, that's what was done, for example, in the women's uh, soccer, uh, World Soccer Cup, uh, uh, where, you know, the US uh, team, for example, was kicked out based on video camera footage. It was not the actors, you know, the, the players on the, on the, um, on, 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 in the game that were uh, asked about whether the ball uh, crossed uh, the line of the goal. It was those video cameras that gave us the verdict. And um, in much the same way, when we use instruments in science or when we use AI in science, we could uh, get a much more reliable answer this way. And I got to believe, if I go back to Mumu for a second, I you know, this idea that it's a light sail, that's another sort of thing that you helped educate me on that I find just a endlessly fascinating thing to think about. Well, I got to believe there's a tremendous amount of data behind your uh, hypothesis that that's how maybe it was able to travel. Yes. You didn't just yeah, come to I mean, that uh, conclusion. There's a reason. There's a reason you came to that conclusion. Yes. Yeah, because um, the object was pushed away from the sun without showing any cometary evaporation. And uh, actually, three years later, there was another object uh, which was pushed uh, 
away from the sun without any cometary evaporation. It was pushed by sunlight, which is basically my, my suggestion. And this second object, three years later, was given the name 2020SO. And the astronomers who discovered it with the same telescope in Hawaii, a few weeks later, they realized, oh, this object actually came from Earth. It was a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 by NASA uh, as part of a lunar lander uh, mission. So here is uh, the proof that there could be a technological object not designed for sailing on light, but having thin walls and as a result uh, being pushed by reflecting sunlight. Uh, and we know it's technological because we produced it. The question is who produced Oumuamua? Yes. And I got to believe if you were able to amass all the data that we know about Oumuamua and put it into a, a, an LLM, that the AI will uncover some things that were not uncovered. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, that's quite possible because um, the AI uh, can explore a much larger parameter space without a bias. So, I mean, of course, the key is to collect as much data as possible, which we did not do for more because the observers assumed that it it's just a rock. But within a year... Uh, the, the Rubin Observatory in Chile will start operations. It has a 3.2 billion pixel camera, a camera that has a thousand times more pixel than your cell phone. Uh, and it will survey the southern sky every four days. And it's likely to find uh, several uh, objects like Oumuamua every year. So we should stay tuned. Now, the amazing thing is I asked them, um, one of the astronomers involved, and you know the, this data will be public because the the observatory was funded by the National Science Foundation. But you still need software to analyze the data coming out of it, and the software that was developed when I asked about it uh, was capable only of identifying objects that are bound to the sun. And I said, uh, "Why would you limit your attention to objects that are bound to the sun?" And the astronomer said, well, that's the way this software was developed. And so as a result of this exchange, I decided with my postdoc to develop the software that would look also for objects that came from outside the solar system. But if I wouldn't do it, you realize that, you know, that they made the original software blind to the most interesting type of objects like Oumuamua, which tells you that unless I keep my eyes on the ball, other people are not. Are not. You know, it's so funny. I don't know why this is in my head. It's a crazy non sequitur, but uh, I suffer from allergies and I love animals and I don't want to have allergies. And so I, for years now, I've been getting allergy shots. They figure out what you're allergic to. They create a concoction of what you're allergic to, to custom to you, and they inject you with your, what you're allergic to to rebuild your system. Anyway, the clinic I go to, Avi, it's shut every Tuesday. And I asked them, how come you're not open on Tuesdays? And here is the answer. You ready? The original doctor who founded the clinic, who's not been around for a very long time, at the time had young children and they had soccer something or other on Tuesdays. And the doctor wanted to be able to go to and or participate in the soccer. So he decided we'd only be open four days a week and Tuesday would be the day off. And I looked at him, I said, is he here anymore? And he said, no, he hasn't been here for years. And I said, so why are you still closed on Tuesday? And there's no answer to that question. 
Yeah, yeah. There is a lot of uh, room for improvement uh, in the reality that surrounds us and it's work in progress. And maybe when we get the wake-up call uh, from a neighbor, we will start to do better. So maybe make this my last question. How soon, Professor, will you and I be able to do this where you will share with me absolute proof that we have discovered uh, alien artifacts and maybe even aliens have come to Earth? Well, I'm not a prophet. I cannot really forecast that. But uh, my hope is that it will be in the coming uh, years, uh, in the near future, because we're taking a path uh, that was never taken before. And therefore, there is a chance that we will find low-hanging fruits because nobody picked them up. And so that's my hope. And I will be delighted to speak with you again once I pick one of these fruits. Well, I'm happy to speak with you under any circumstance. Uh, Professor Avi Loeb, thank you so much. Love everything that you're doing. Uh, I have, I know you're much more gentle than I am, but I have a big, big middle finger up to everybody who's against you. I don't know whether you're right or wrong, but what I do know is it's powerful work. It's work that we've uh, uh, been waiting for for years and years. Those of us, the little boy in me salutes the little boy in you, watching Captain Kirk, dreaming about what's in the sky. And uh, um, I think it's amazing that a man in your situation is willing to go this far where others have not been willing to go. And so um, thank you. I appreciate you. And of course, live long and prosper. Thank you so much. I'll do my best. Well, there he is, the legendary Professor Avi Loeb. His new book is a number one bestseller. I loved it. I love everything about this guy. I think he's incredible. I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of his new book. It's called Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share this episode on social media right now or uh, share it with uh, the closest 200 friends that you have. We deeply appreciate your social media shares and your word of mouth because word of mouth is, was, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to me, Jason, and everybody here. Uh, Don't forget our friends at MightyNetworks.com. If you're a marketer or creator who wants to build and monetize a uh, native digital community, sell courses, uh, create radical levels of engagement and connection, check out MightyNetworks.com. Also, at this time where we're having so many uh, natural disasters and tragedies here in the United States, why not consider helping our friends in Florida, helping our friends in uh, Hawaii and elsewhere around the country who need our help right now? Check out our friends at the Salvation Army. That's SalvationArmyUSA.org. SalvationArmyUSA.org. And our friends at the American Red Cross, redcross.org. That's redcross.org. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided just solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. If you're into marketing, why not check out our other oddcast, Lockhead on Marketing. You also uh, must be aware that the contents of this oddcast are known to cause radically non-obvious thinking in new categories and exponential results. All oddcasts do contain nuts, and all rights are perturbed. Please consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything you heard about today. 
Don't forget that everything is the way that it is because somebody legendary changed the way that it was. Captain James T. Kirk reminds us there's no such thing as the unknown, only things that are temporarily hidden. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason Gifilippo. Check out his podcast, Boot Up with Jason. If you're into tech and you want the tech news quick, that's Boot Up with Jason, wherever you get legendary oddcasts. Uh, technical Execution and Lockhead.com are built by Sarah Knox and Jamie J. Our show notes are by GM Simon and the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ. Do our web design and Graphic Bureaus does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm in Dolby ADHD technology. Katie Lang was right. Listen to uh, The Tragically Hip. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Darth Vader. Sorry, Vader. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you very much. Please stay safe. Stay legendary. Until we're together again, follow your different.